0: So, the book of Hebrews is birthed out of a concern. The writer wants to urge uh, folks, all of us, to go all the way with Jesus. Uh, Because what had happened in the book of Hebrews is this audience had started out initially excited about Jesus, and then things began to get difficult. They began to get tough. I mean, some of them were actually facing severe persecution because of him. Loved ones were suffering. Friends were deserting Jesus and the faith community. Life was hard. There was sickness. There was death. Many of them were disappointed in God. So they were kind of tempted to go backwards and not forwards. Go back to what they'd found comfort in and hope in previously, right? I mean, they were like this. Wait a minute. This was supposed to be easier. And so some of them were starting to lag behind, And if some of you were honest, you know exactly how that feels, don't you? Uh, You know, if you're honest, maybe you would admit that maybe you're struggling a little bit. Maybe you're lagging behind a little in your faith. Maybe you're tempted to not go all the way with Jesus. I mean, maybe you thought you'd accept Jesus and everything would just kind of work out. It would be, you know, easy, easy street, easy marriage, easy life. Maybe you're a single girl and Mr. Right was supposed to kind of come swooping in. You've been patient, you've been waiting, you've been praying, but that's not happening. Maybe you thought you'd be married by now or have children by now and you aren't and you don't. Some of you are married, and you desperately want your marriage to get better, and it isn't. Maybe temptations are getting more tempting, not less. You're finding it harder to walk with God or, you know, talk with God. Or maybe you're in pain, and, it, and all of us know that it's really, really hard to feel super spiritual when you're walking with a limp, when you're in pain. And so, maybe your faith is lagging for that reason. And so, the writer of Hebrews has one basic message. He says this, don't give up. Christ is better. Fourteen times in the book of Hebrews, you see this phrase, Christ is better, Christ is higher, Christ is superior, right? So, do whatever is necessary, the author would urge us, to keep your faith in Him strong and focused, Now, a word of warning before we dive in: This is not an easy book. It's saturated with uh, difficult and complex Old Testament quotes, with Jewish religious practices that are foreign uh, to many of us. In fact, William Barclay calls it the most difficult book in the entire New Testament. William Lane agrees with him, but says, "Hey, it's worth it if you dig in." Uh, He says it's one of the most rewarding books in the whole Bible. I wholeheartedly agree and that's why we're doing this series now last week Pastor Lee reminded us that Jesus has a completely different nature than you and I do he is God really he is God's so we looked at verses one through three last week right and we found out that he is God's prophetic voice He is God's son. He is God's appointed heir. He is God's creative agent. He is God's personified glory. He is God's perfect revelation. He is God's cosmic sustainer. And he is God's unique sacrifice. And that's what we're going to look at today first, is this idea of Jesus being a unique sacrifice. So we're going to look at the uh, 3B. Here's what he says. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Uh, Now, uh, what I want to look at there is I want us to note a couple things. In verse 1, he's already said that God, in the past, God spoke to us through the prophets. But in the present, God is speaking to us through his son. And what the writer is going to argue in this first chapter is that Jesus is better than the law, better than the prophets, better even than angels or any spiritual being that you can think of. Uh, and it's really important to understand this message. So, in other words, he, he argues this this way. He says, you know, other prophets gave instructions about what we must do to be reconciled to God. Jesus, on the other hand, actually reconciled us to God. The prophet said, do this or do that. Jesus said, it's done. It's finished. It's over because of me. Uh, and, then, uh, and then we're told not only did, J- did Jesus make purifications for sins, do for us what we could have never done for ourselves, but now he, he's now sat down. Well, when do you sit down? You sit down when you finish something, right? When, when you're done, you sit down to rest. So this is one way of Jesus saying, look, my perfect sacrifice is over, it's done, it's finished. Um, and and he's where is he sitting he's sitting at the right hand of God in other words that's the seat of power that's the seat of rulership that's the seat of authority and that's the seat that our Jesus you know sits in And what the writer of Hebrews is going to tell us week after week, he's going to remind us of that the Jewish people had a sacrificial system, right? They used to cover over their sins. It was a great, awesome picture of what our Jesus would do. He would become the perfect sacrifice for us so that those sacrifices would never have to be made again. And I want you to think about what that altar would have looked like with the blood of hundreds of thousands of animals offered every day, for centuries, hundreds of years. And so the author of Hebrews is telling us, look, Jesus offered himself once for all as the perfect uh, sacrifice for sins, and then he sat down, and he now rules, and there is nothing left to do. His work is finished. So this first chapter has this one point, Christ is superior to the prophets, to angels, or to any other spiritual authority. Now, um, it's interesting because in verse one, he said, hey, he used to speak to us through the prophets. So in other words, he doesn't speak to us that way anymore. Now he's speaking to us through his son, right? And, uh, and then uh, he also says, look, everything in the law Uh, revolves around Jesus. It points to Jesus. And this should affect the way that we think about and understand and read the Bible. So in Luke 24, we're told that Jesus explained, went through the Old Testament with his disciples, and how he explained to them how everything written there actually was about him and pointed to him. And Tim Keller uh, kind of teases this out a little bit, and so this isn't mine, this is Tim Keller. Here's what he says about um, the Old Testament saints. He says, Jesus is the truer and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is now given to us. Jesus is the truer and better Isaac who was not just offered up by his father on the mountain, but was actually sacrificed for us. Jesus is the truer and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserved, so that we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace to wake us and discipline us. Jesus is a truer and better Joseph who sits at the right hand of the king and forgives those who betrayed him and uses his new power to to actually save them. Jesus is a truer and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new and a better covenant. Jesus is the truer and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who intercedes for his stupid friends. Jesus is the truer and better David, whose victory became ours, even though we never lifted a stone to help him. He is the truer and better Samson crushed under the weight of the wicked world to conquer our enemies and to save us. He's the truer and better Jonah who was cast into the storm so that we could be brought in and brought aboard. He's the real Passover lamb. Innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so that the angel of death can pass over us. He... And he alone, friends, is the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, and the true, true bread. And so what that means is at the end of the day when we read the Bible, see, often we approach the Bible like it's all about us. No, the Bible is meant to point us to a Savior, to a, a door. And this should affect how we read the Bible, how we approach the Old Testament. I mean, just tell you a little pet peeve of mine. Sometimes when we approach the Old Testament, we approach it this way. We say, well, hey, you know, we should we we take these characters from the Old Testament and we elevate them and we say, well, we should be just like them. So here's how this sounds. So we say things like, hey, we we should follow God like Abraham. We should defeat our giants like David. You know, we should lead our people like Nehemiah. We should be courageous like Daniel. And that's okay, but I have two concerns with this approach. First, there are a lot of things in the lives of these characters that you don't want to emulate, right? In other words, Moses had an out of control temper, Abraham had a habit of lying to get out of trouble, David committed adultery, then lied about it and murdered someone, you know, to cover that up. At the end of his life, Nehemiah lost control and went wolverine on everybody. It says he got so mad and frustrated with the leaders of Israel, he pulled out all their beards and stripped off all their clothes. So there are a lot of things about these men, right, that you don't want to imitate, that you don't want to do. And this is because the prophets weren't given to us, you know, as primarily as examples to follow or emulate. They were given to us to point us to a Savior to adore and to love. And that's why those prophets were given. No other reason right? And then in verse 4, he is good. Oh, and by the way, so I'll conclude this thought this way. Folks, we're not called to follow Moses. We're not called to follow Daniel or Nehemiah. We are called to follow Jesus. He is who we are meant to emulate. And the author here is going to say, look, prophets and angels gave the Word of God, but Jesus is the Word of God. That to which the prophets pointed to faultily, Jesus embodied perfectly. Now, one more little beef with this approach to the Old Testament. Finally, when we take children or adults through an emulation approach to the Old Testament, it It leads to a kind of moralism and away from the simple purity of the gospel. In other words, we're not saved because we lead people like Nehemiah. We're not not saved because we slay the giants like David. We're saved because of what Jesus did and who he was. We're saved by his death, his burial, and his resurrection from Christ. And so then he goes on in verse 4 to say, this, having become as much better than the angels, having inherited a more excellent name than they... Now, I'm not going to walk you through, There's a, he quotes a lot of verses in uh, Hebrews chapter 1 to prove the point that Jesus is superior to angels and any other spiritual authority. But I do want to walk you through his argument. Here's what he argues through the rest of chapter 1. He says, look, Jesus is sitting as king, angels are sent as servants, Secondly, he says, you know, as the Son of God, Jesus is worshipped by angels. And then thirdly, he says, as God, Jesus created everything that is, including angels. And as the head of the church, angels are sent to do his bidding for the church and for the saints. Now, when you think about angels, you know, whenever an angel shows up in the Bible, and you know this if you've spent any time in the Scriptures, right? Those angels are so glorious and so beautiful and so terrifying that the first words out of their mouth whenever they encounter a human being is, hey, look, don't be afraid. I mean, they don't show up chubby and naked in a diaper with a small, you know, bow and arrow. That's just, that's like stupid Christian art right? But that's not scripture. They show up and people are like, I am so afraid I'm about to die. So this is what we're talking about. And a lot of people don't realize that when you talk about angels, you're also talking about demons and even Satan himself. In fact, in the next chapter, here in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 2, where we're going to spend most of our time today, we're told why Jesus had to become human, why he had to not only die, but be raised from the dead, and it says that he did that in verse 14, so that through death, he might destroy him who had held the power of death, that is, the devil. So just kind of a history lesson uh, uh, among the heavenly realms. The devil used to be a very, very powerful angel called a cherub. And his job was actually to guard the throne of God. So as such, he was an exceptionally powerful angel. Uh, You can check out all this for yourself in Ezekiel chapter 28. It seems to me, in a few other places, we understand that another one of the devil's jobs in heaven would have been to lead worship. In other words, to point people to the glory of God, which makes what he did even more revolting, right? Because he was supposed to give glory to God. And what did he do? He took glory for himself and he rebelled. And when he rebelled, he took a third of the angels of heaven with him and those third of the angels of heaven are what we now know and call uh, demons. They're demons who've been uh, marred and distorted uh, by sin and rebellion, which is really what sin is, right? And so many of the stories we read in the Gospels—oh, by the way, let me add this to it. So, you know, if I were to—if if you were to ask the average Christian, what chapter of the Bible is the fall Well, most people are going to say, well, the fall happened. You know, Adam and Eve rebelled against God in Genesis 3. Uh, but that's not, and that's partly right, but the fall is actually included in Genesis chapter 3 through chapter 11. It culminates in the Tower of Babel, and we're meant to see an amplification of the fall. And so in Genesis 3, for example, you have Adam and Eve rebelling against God, but in Genesis 6, you have spiritual rebellion against God in the heavenlies. So just as there was physical rebellion against God in Genesis 3, there was spiritual rebellion against God in Genesis chapter 6. Here's how you might say it. So in Genesis chapter 3, a spiritual being convinced the woman to uh, reach out and take what she saw as good. In Genesis chapter 6, you have spiritual beings becoming uh, men and taking women that they saw as good. This is so powerful, and it's so important to understand that that just as we have physically rebelled against God, there was a spiritual rebellion against God in the heavenly realm. Now, so when a Jew, when Jewish people read through the Gospels, they saw things that we didn't see. So, for example, we'll just look at this through two different stories, Mark 4 and Mark 5, that are both tied together. So in Mark 4, many of you know the passage. Right? Jesus calms the storm. He stills the storm. He gets in a boat with his disciples. He's gonna cross over to the other side, and that's a super important phrase. He's gonna be traveling to the what Matthew 4.19 calls the ten cities of darkness. See, these were countries, uh, this is called the Decapolis, countries steeped in Greek culture and humanism. And so the Jews viewed the other side as a very, very dark place. Furthermore, they viewed the sea, the depths of the sea, as because it was so dark there, that was where demons retreated uh, when they uh, they left. They would retreat, they believed, to the depths of the sea. So when you read Mark 4 and we see Jesus crossing and the storm comes up, To use modern vernacular, they wouldn't have said it quite this way, but but we would. To use modern vernacular, the devil blew a storm up to stop Jesus from reaching the other side And the devil was not able to stop Jesus because he controlled the sea in their mind. And then Jesus lands on the other side in these cities of darkness. And the first thing he's confronted with is someone who's demon-possessed. So listen, what the author wants you to know is this is an away game. See, Jesus isn't going to meet these demons on his own turf. He's going to countries of darkness, to cities of darkness, and to make matters worse, the the demoniac that's going to meet him uh, by the sea uh, comes from tombs. And so this ratchets it up another level because the Jews believed that a special kind, only the most powerful demons resided among tombs. And so uh, you kind of read through the story. Here's how it unfolds. But remember, as we're reading the story, Jesus, the devil has already tried to stop Jesus from getting to this point by sending the storm and he couldn't stop him. And then here, here's how the story goes. So they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. The reason he used the word unclean is because Jews weren't allowed to touch dead bodies. They viewed dead bodies as unclean. And so this is an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he'd often been bound with shackles and chains, but he went, wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. I mean, this is, so again, this is just meant to, to speak of the highest level of demonic oppression that a person can have, right? Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice. He said, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, don't torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are are many. And then we're told that he begged Jesus not to send out. Now coincidentally, remember I told you that Jews believed that demons retreated to the depth of the sea? In the end of this story, these demons are going to be driven into a herd of pigs, which Jews also considered unclean. And those pigs are just going to rush off the shore into the sea. So in the minds of a Jew, those demons are just going back where they belong. See, kind of cool when you know these kind of details, right? So the devil just tried to stop Jesus from getting to the other side. He's met by a man who's possessed by a Roman battalion of the most powerful demons that a Jew could conceive of. And it's an away game. He's not on home soil. He's playing away from home on a foreign and dark land in a cemetery. And and it's, Jesus doesn't even break a sweat. I mean, it's not even close. Why? Why is that? Well, the author of the book of Hebrews tells us, right? He, he tells us very, very clearly that... Um, that Jesus has been given a better name. He's he's on a completely different level than angels or demons or or the devil. Uh, Like, angels have always worshipped him as God. See, if they don't worship him as God, here, they still know who he is. They recognize Jesus right away. And so, if they don't worship Him as God, in other words, if they're a demon, they know who He is. They recognize His power and authority instantly. And so, here's the takeaway for us. If you are a follower of Jesus, and you're an abiding follower, and you're an obedient follower, you don't have anything to fear ever from the spiritual forces of darkness. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, right? And and this is what the author of Hebrews is arguing in Hebrews chapter 1. He's saying there is no one like our Jesus. He is unique even among any other spiritual being. He is absolutely supreme. He is absolutely unique. And because of his uniqueness, because of his supremacy, here's what he says in chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Remember, I said earlier that there was the book of Hebrews is birthed in a concern, right? He wants these people, they're facing difficulty, they're disappointed in God, and so they're wanting to go back to what was comfortable. They're wanting to leave Jesus because they thought it would be easy street when Jesus came. And the author is saying, look, it is so important. Like if you drift from Jesus, you're the one moving. It's not Jesus. But that's what a current does, right? A current takes us places uh, we don't really want to go. So he says, lest we drift away from us. He's he's saying something so powerful here. He's warning us against drift when it comes to our relationship with with Jesus. He is saying, look, you better get back to the gospel. You better ruminate on what Jesus has done for you. And you better live out of him every single day. Because if you don't, spiritual drift is inevitable. And wouldn't you agree that in our culture... I mean, we have a culture that uh, it's just easy to, to spiritually begin to drift. Everything about our culture pulls away. The current of our culture moves away from Jesus, not toward Jesus. And so he's saying, look, you've got to be careful. You've got to hold on to the gospel. I mean, he is reminding them that the great danger of the spiritual life is drift because it happens so slowly and so imperceptibly that you don't even notice it. One of my favorite movies about drift um, is a movie called Castaway. It's about a man by the name of Chuck Nolan who. Um, who ends up on a deserted island, he drifts onto an island, and he's, he's on this island completely alone and by himself for four years. And at one point, you know, stuff washes up on the beach, so he finds something that's washed up and it has, it has a, a volleyball in it. And so he's so desperate for company, and for a relationship, because he's all alone, that he builds himself a friend that he calls Wilson. And I want you to watch the scene in the movie where he makes Wilson, and then I want you to watch the scene in the movie when Wilson drifts away. So check this out. Wilson, where are you? (laughs) Wilson! (sighs) Yeah. <sighs> So here's the deal. In our drift away from God, see Jesus came and did what Chuck couldn't do. Jesus bridged the gap. Jesus came and he didn't say, I can't, I can't do it. He conquered death for you and for me. And he came looking and he still calls out today, your name, Because of Jesus, because of the life and death and resurrection of our Savior, our God still calls out for you when you drift away. And this is why the author of Hebrews would say, how could we possibly neglect such a great salvation? In fact, this is kind of the question that he asks um, here in the next verse. Look what he says. He says, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. Now, here he's talking about the law and the prophets. And he's saying that the law and the prophets were mediated by angels. And he says, hey, that was reliable right and 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 just as in that covenant every transgression or every act of disobedience received a just retribution and that's what this covenant was about right if you obeyed God he would bless you if you disobeyed God he would punish you and what the author is saying is he's saying look Jesus doesn't come to you that way God spoke that way through the prophets, yes, but that's a used to. Jesus now speaks in a different way. And so he says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Here's what the author is saying. He's saying, look, God didn't come to you threatening judgment like the message spoken through the angels. I mean, the message they spoke just promised judgment. Jesus came overflowing with love and he absorbed your judgment, took on the punishment that you and I deserved. He bore that punishment so that you and I wouldn't have to. Jesus came to you and me extending mercy and grace and patience and kindness. And here's what the author of the book of Hebrews is saying. He's saying, if you won't listen to that, if you won't listen to mercy and grace and kindness, if you spurn that, what hope is there for you? Because no one else is going to come for you. No one else with the authority and power of Jesus is ever going to spring up In your life. Not ever again. Because there's no one and nothing else like Him. So if you won't listen to Him. Who will you listen to? I mean, if you won't listen to the most perfect, kind, gentle, righteous person the world's ever known. Who will you listen to? And the reality is, what the author is saying is, if you won't listen to Him you're not ever going to listen to anybody. because And so in, in that, there's just no hope for you. And in fact, I want you to notice, he says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Uh, I want you to notice, he uses the word neglect. He didn't say what hope for us is if we reject salvation. He's not... He's not talking about rejection. He's just talking about taking it for granted. He's just talking about living as if, you know, it's kind of there, but it's in the background. You're not really focused on it. You're not living out of that. You know, you're just taking it for granted. And isn't it so easy in our culture to take the Word of God for granted and neglect it? Isn't it so easy? I mean, which which should be a connection to Jesus, right? We just talked about how all the Word points us to Jesus every single day. It's one of our primary connections. I'll tell you another one. Prayer. But isn't it so easy how we will neglect our salvation in the sense of how prayerless we can be throughout a day? How determined every single one of us in the room is to live life on our own and on our own merit and it's, that's not what the gospel is all about. And so out of that, this neglect idea. See, ne- neglect of our salvation is precisely why we talk so much about discipleship around here. About being men and women who are following Jesus every day. Who are being shaped and changed by Jesus every day. And then who are on mission with Jesus every single day. Don't neglect your salvation. Don't take it for granted. So are you engaging in the spiritual disciplines? Are you allowing God's Word to point you to Jesus? Are you praying and depending on or abiding in Jesus every single day? If you're not, you're neglecting a great salvation. Uh, And nobody wants to do that, right? None of us who know our Jesus, want to be that guy or that girl. And then I love what he does as he wraps up Hebrews 2, uh, 6 through 9. He says, well, you know, hey, it's been testified somewhere. It's It's like he has a senior moment. He quotes Psalm 8, and it's clear as he quotes Psalm 8 that he knows it backwards and forwards, but he can't quite remember the reference. So he's like, hey, somewhere back there, But then he, here's what he goes on to say, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? And so he's continuing to talk about mankind. You made him for a little while lower than the angels and you've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control, Although in the current day, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. The him here is mankind, men. Um, But we do see Jesus. Now, this is an amazing statement. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, God made the world for human beings. All of creation was supposed to be under our control it was made for us to enjoy and for a little while we have been made lower than the angels so he's kind of assigning a pecking order it's like you know get Jesus angels men uh, but he says for a little while and it means it's just temporary Uh, So uh, here's what that might look like. Let's say you have a king and the king has a son and the son is going to get tutored by uh, or taught by a teacher. Well, who's in charge, the king's son or the tutor? Well, it's the tutor, right? But one day the king's son is going to grow up and he's going to become king. And so this is kind of what he's arguing here um, is, look, ultimately the destiny of that son is going to control the whole country, even though he's under the control of a tutor right now. So here's what he's saying that you and I as human beings are going to be one day higher in title, higher in stature than angels. So here's what I want you to do. I want everybody to look to your left and to your right and just study the per Don't do it in a creepy way, right? But just study the person next to you. Here's why this is so important. As you're looking at that person, if they know Jesus, If they said yes to him, they are destined to be higher. They are destined to be more beautiful. They are destined to have more glory and power than Gabriel or Michael. Remember the angels that people like die from fear when they meet them? It's hard to believe, huh? I mean, and you're like taking a second look at the person and you're like, well, God's going to have to like do a lot of work on them for that to happen. That might be true, but nonetheless, this is what the author of Hebrews is arguing. And now comes the understatement of the year. He says, at present, at present he says, man is meant to be in control of this world, to have dominion over it. But at present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. Now, we all know this in a way we haven't known it for most of our lives, right? I mean, because we're in the middle of a pandemic. We know in a pandemic that we're not in control of what is happening you know, in our world. And, and we've all seen how scientists, right, how desperately we're trying to get out ahead of this thing and control it and, you know, kind of keep it contained, right? And when we come out with a vaccine, the virus now mutates. And so there's all these different mutations running around. And so uh, doctors who study this kind of thing are now saying, look, it's gonna move, this is going to move from a pandemic to being an endemic. And an endemic means... It's going to be around a while. Like this thing's not going away anytime soon. We're going to have to learn to live with this. So see, I mean, we look at situations like that and it's like, man, we know that at present we don't see the world under our control, right? And we've all seen how fragile even the strongest economies can be. I mean, there's not a one of us in the room that can control the economy. We've all seen this past year millions of people lose their jobs and have no control in that, right? We definitely know in these days that we do not have dominion over the world. I mean, pandemics prove that. Hurricanes prove that. Tornadoes prove that. Tsunamis and earthquakes and erupting volcanoes and illnesses and plagues and sicknesses. All that. There are just some problems in the world that we finally know we can't control and that we can't fix and quite frankly, this causes problems for people. Uh, In fact, I would say the greatest apologetic problem that people have with Christianity um, is they ask this question, well, why is there so much evil in the world? Why tsunamis? You know, why so much heartache and abuse? Uh, Now listen, here's what I want to point out to you. When people ask that question, See, we know, everybody knows instinctively and intuitively that this world, that, that we are meant to have dominion over this world. Uh, like Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. Everybody takes that for granted. We, we're supposed to have dominion over the world. See, they wouldn't even be asking this question if they didn't understand that instinctually, right, or, uh, or know it. Um, so, so, that, so they ask the question, right? So the writer says, no, we, don't, we know the world's not under our control, but we see Jesus. We see Jesus. When we look around, we don't look at all the problems in the world. We fix our eyes on Jesus. With all of the problems in the world, Jesus is bigger than all of them he is supreme. We may not be in control, but our Jesus, he is in control. And isn't that a good thing? Hey, look, if you can't be in control, it's good things to be best buds with the person who is. Amen? So the author is just saying, look, we don't get overwhelmed by the problems of this world. We are citizens of of another world, of a better country. We fix our eyes on Jesus. So let me ask you, you know, uh, what are you making better than Jesus? What are you looking to that you aren't offering to Jesus? Because drift in this world, especially a world where we're not in control, drift in this world is inevitable. So, Uh, How are you? How might you be neglecting your salvation? How's your prayer life? How's your time in the Word? Because everything depends on it. Everything depends on it. Because there's no one higher, there's no one better than Him. So, in a moment, we're going to sing a song and there's something about this song that is so, um, it's so simple and so beautiful. I, almost every time I hear it, I, I want to cry. And I want to challenge you. Like, what does it look like to not neglect your salvation? It, well, it looks like this: when you sing a worship song in church, you're not thinking about what you still have to do the rest of the day, or you're not thinking about how your evening's going to go, or what you're going to eat for lunch. It means you're engaged in what you're 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 engaged in in the words that you're singing, and you're engaged with who you are singing them to. It means that when you open up Scripture. That you're aware that everything you read in in that passage is meant to point you to Jesus. And so some of you should start asking this question when you open Scripture. No matter what passage you're reading, no matter what you're reading about, how does this point me to Jesus? Because it's meant to. It's meant to. So as we, uh, I'm going to invite our praise team to come on up and um, I'm, I'm just going to pray for us and then we're going to sing and then I'm going to come back up and um, then we'll, you know, get on with our day, but not before we give glory to our Jesus. So let me pray. Hey God, um, God, I know some of us might need to bring, you know, an offering to you as a way to to glorify and magnify you. Others of us may need to, may have a prayer request, you know. And so as we pray that, we pray that, aware, Lord Jesus, of how big you are, how utterly unique in all of the universe you are. And so help us to pray with more faith. God, as we sing, we're aware of the sacrifice that you've made. God, we would not want to neglect for a, even for a moment the greatness of our salvation. God, we wouldn't want to be swept up into fear and worry and overload given the current of COVID. Instead, Lord Jesus, we choose today to fix our eyes on Jesus. We will sing about our Jesus. We will walk with our Jesus. We will serve our Jesus. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen.